0: Namaste and welcome. This is Jainil Dalal and you are listening to The Design MBA. This podcast is a real-life MBA program for designers where we interview design hustlers and learn the skills, mindset necessary for a designer to launch a business venture. You can learn more. Find past episodes and stay updated at designmba.show. Why are you listening to this podcast? Think about it deep down you want to grow in your design career. And I've been in your shoes. I've pushed pixels for years without really knowing how the hell do I grow in my design career. So I've created a free email course for you to help you level up your design career. The strategies I share in this 7-day email course are actionable and used by over 700 plus designers with success. So head over to levelup.designmba.show or you can find the link to this email course in the show notes. Level up your design career today. Today's amazing guest is Sung Kim. Sung is a lead product designer at Amazon and recently launched a new tire installation service that has become the top three selling service on Amazon in three weeks. Sung was ranked 51st on the list of the 75 best designers in technology by Business Insider in 2013 and has received a number of recognitions from Innovation by Design Awards by Fast Company in 2016, Webby in 2017, and German Design Awards in 2018. Previously, Sung led UX UI design efforts for Samsung Milk VR, Sam's Club mobile shopping app 711.com, FedEx Office workstations, Starbucks promo campaigns, Product Red website design, and Bud Light's first mobile website. What's going on, Song? Great to be talking with you. How's life in Seattle?
1: Well, Seattle—it's gloomy. It's about to be a rainy season, so yeah, just trying to enjoy the last bit of sun that's squeezing <laughs> through the the clouds. But it's okay. Yeah.
0: There you go. Yeah, I've kind of been to Seattle a couple of times, and one of the things I did notice is about that because uh, the the majority of the time when I was in it there, it was always raining. So I did notice that gloomy weather that you mentioned about, like it just kind of affects your mood in a way.
1: Oh, yeah, the companies actually encourage you to get out for long weekends and get some sun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no way! So the companies actually encourage the employees to get out of Seattle. Yeah, at
1: least my team, like, you know, encourages that we get out and get some sun, or you know,
0: you have to take some vitamin D pills. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Where do I begin, man? You know, one of the questions I always had is how on earth did you get into the world of design? Was it something that you already had envisioned that you were going to go into design or or it was just something you stumbled upon by chance? How did that journey start? for you? How far back do you want to go? <laughs> Let's take it as far back as we can.
1: Okay. So I, when I was in uh, high school, my counselor asked me, hey, Song, uh, you're about to graduate what do you want to do when you graduate what are you going to major in in college and i said Oh, well, i'm i'm going to design i'm going to be a designer and my counselors counselor was like what kind of designer graphic design interior design architect you know have you thought about what kind of designer you want to be and my answer was like designer <laughs> So basically, pretty generic,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that, that's, that's pretty much my extent to my uh, extent of my knowledge in terms of design. Like that, I didn't really know anything about design or what it takes to be a designer or any kind of designer. And then, next thing you know, I went to a community college and I was working for a computer lab. I was uh, just um, a lab monitor, just watching people, helping them with the, the setup and things like that, check ins. And then a bunch of tutorial books. So this was when like Adobe was just taking off. They were like Adobe Flash, Illustrator, Photoshop, you know, director and things like that. That's some of those software pieces that don't exist anymore, but there are tutorial books everywhere. So I sort of like started reading them, taking some classes, uh, but I wasn't really thinking about going into graphic design at the moment. And then next thing you know, I was uh, joined a newspaper company at the community college as a cartoonist. So I was an illustrator for the newspaper company and I was just, you know, drawing cartoons uh, once a week and that was, that was my thing. And then one day the newspaper designer, uh, sort of like, uh, <laughs> up and left. Basically what happened was that the company, newspaper company updated the software from using a Quark express pro, uh, which was like the standard, uh, design program at the time for newspaper to InDesign 1.0. And the designer was like, fuck it. I'm not going to learn new software. I don't really, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then the newspaper had a dilemma, right? They either have to decide to yeah. not re- release a newspaper or find somebody to fill the, the hole, but they didn't have anyone to fill the hole. So I sort of like, I just raised my hand, specially And I was like, uh, can I give it a, can I give it a try? <laughs> Basically that night, um. I had one night to put the newspaper together, basically. So at that night, I opened the uh, InDesign 1.0 tutorial book, uh, and I put a newspaper together in one night. That was my uh, first step into actual design, the world of design. And then next thing you know, I transferred to um, uh, SMU and uh, measured in uh, advertising. The only reason why I went to SMU was because they offered full-time scholarship. I failed the interview, so I didn't get the full scholarship, but I got, I got half scholarship because of my GPA and essay. Uh, so when I got there, I realized that they didn't have a graphic design program. So I was like, well, if I, if I had a graphic design degree, well, what would I do with it? I'd probably like, do it, you know, use it in advertising. So I decided to measure in advertising. And then that's where I learned the process of concepting. Before then, it was all about just making things pretty. Kind of like I didn't think about putting meanings behind my de- meanings the intentions purpose behind my design decisions. It was all about just making things pretty, and I didn't know anything about putting concepts together or pitch the concepts to other people. majoring in advertising it helped me sort of like understand what what concepts are and how to pitch them to other people and then um next thing you know, I graduated and I got my uh first um before I graduated, I had an internship in New York um, for three months and I did a pretty good job there and they told me that, you know, they I had a job guaranteed when I graduated. So I just took that as a uh, <laughs> promise and I, I believed them and I sort of like, you know, fucked up the, my, the last semester of my college because I was like, I already have a job lined up. Why do I have to go you know, yeah. you know, to school? <laughs> I like so you, you're, I, you're all set. Yeah, so sad. I'm uh, I'm, I'm gonna work, work work for BBDO New York, that's one of the biggest ed agencies in the world. Uh, my life is you know just starting. Anyways, I was so excited. And then when I graduated and called them, they were like, oh, you know, what? we don't really have anything available for you.
0: <laughs> oh my god. So did, they, uh, like, did they, so did they did convey to you like when you were interning there that you are going to get a job or did you just assume that it, it was like a thing back then like if you oh, interned the, there then
1: the recruiter was like oh yeah everybody loves you like you're welcome back anytime that's how she put it
0: <laughs> oh my god <laughs>
1: uh, so when I, I mean like there was no promise promise but then like i i was naive i just took that as a promise that i believed them uh, when I still, so after I realized I don't have a job, I hustled at the last minute to interview in a bunch of places in Dallas, and I found this one place called the uh, Engine Studio in Dallas. So it was a production company, so they don't really do design work. What they do is that they take the design work from other agencies and they re- resize them into a mo- bunch of different sizes and print them. That's their core competency. So my first job was literally not designing uh, my job was to take somebody else's design and resize them into 100 different sizes and like basically <laughs> my first job is making something called bathroom clings. you know one of those ads that go on uh, above the urinal in the bathroom
0: oh my god yeah wow you need to resize that, was my, that
1: that was my very first job and i was miserable like it's not basically i was not allowed to design. I'm just resizing somebody else's design. It's gotta be in the bathroom above the urinals. And it was just like, fuck.
0: You can't even brag about it. You can't even brag about it. Like next time you're talking to your friends, like, Hey, by the way, if you go to the urinal, that sign (laughs) that you stay there, that's, that's what I designed. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely not a conversation starter. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) So I was miserable. So one, I remember one day I was walking from the parking garage to the office and I was like, I literally, there was like a tunnel between the parking garage and the office, and I literally just fell on the floor because I just physically could not take another step towards the office. So I was dead miserable.
0: So it was like a burnout. Yeah. So
1: I interviewed at another company in the same building called Tribal DDP. It's It was a uh, digital agency. So I interviewed there. They were looking for a senior art director. I was not even a junior. I was barely entry level. But then they like my portfolio they like the interview so they said oh just, just stay in touch and see what happens and then a week goes by nothing so i, I start calling them every day hey so have you found anyone hey have you guys decided hey just letting you know i'm still available hey by the way uh oh the- <laughs> my god
0: <laughs> every day
1: <laughs> every day and then um Basically, they didn't find anyone, uh, any senior design, senior art directors. So they, just, they they decided to give me a give me a chance by giving me three month temp position. And then at the same time, this production company I was working for offered me a full time position at glorious twenty four thousand dollars a year. It's like barely minimum wage, but like wow. that was that was the most money I've ever been offered to that day. So like 24,000, so I was like, think about it. Like the guy who just came out of college has had, who had no job prospects gets offered a full-time position for $24,000, which is the biggest amount of money he's ever seen in his life for full-time with, with benefits or take the three month temp position that has yeah. no guarantee um, that has no contract a trial. Yeah, if if they don't like you, they can let you go in like the next day. Like, there's
0: no guarantee. There's no benefit or anything. But then it's it's the higher title, though. The it's the higher director. title.
1: I'll, I'll be just like a just a freelance. There's no title. Like literally, I'm just like a grunt. So I decided to take the three month temp job Damn. because because that's how much I just hated the other the other job. Yeah. And then I was actually in the. um and so they put all the freelancers in the same room. Um, there were like six freelancers in a tiny, this uh, tiny uh, storage room. And actually uh, another friend of mine was sitting next to me from the school. Uh, he was also the freelancer. Uh, he was also freelancing for like the same company. And then like, he was always complaining about, oh, my boss doesn't listen to me. Oh, I don't like their feedback. He was always complaining and left, you know, left the word early. Uh, but then like, I was like, you know what? I just kept my mouth shut. I just did whatever they told me to do. And I literally just like, I worked, I went, went to office at 6 a.m. and left there like, at like 10 p.m. every day.
0: And how long was this? Like how long did you just continue that like 6 a.m. to 10 p.m.? Like three months, like while I was working
1: there. Yeah.
0: Wow.
1: And basically, uh, I was doing things like that. Uh, my boss was making flash games for uh, Cheetos. And like, he needed some like digital assets, like the you know, logos on the little logos or background illustrations and things, things like that. So I did the illustrations and then di- digitized it, put it in flash, made logos and things like that. I, I, mean, I had like a really great mentor too. Like I learned a lot from him. I actually made a separate video on uh, LinkedIn uh, about him, thanking him. So after three months, I got the job and then I, got, I was offered $32,000 a year salary which was uh, like a lot higher than $8,000 higher than the the offer I got from the. Oh
0: yeah.
1: So like you and I actually hear this pattern as I tell my story, but I, I didn't realize this at the time, but whenever I chose opportunity over money, that always worked out for me. But whenever I chose money over opportunity, it always became a dead end. It was the biggest failure in my life whenever I chose money.
0: do you have an yeah. example where you chose uh, money or yeah, opportunity I'll, and then it came back to like I would say bite you back in the ass
1: yeah I'll, I'll get there it's, it's coming up it's coming up pretty soon <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, so basically, like in this case, I chose the opportunity without knowing this is a better you know, the better thing to do and it worked out and then I worked there for three years, and then my pay went up to forty five thousand dollars and then I mean, I had opportunities to work on, you know, amazing, like, projects. Like, I was a lead designer for JoinRed.com's, like, like, the, I think before I designed the, their website, they didn't, they really had nothing. It was a one-page website. But I was like, the one that I designed was their uh, official, like, you know, first website for JoinRed.com. It's the, uh, charity that's sponsored by Bono. I became the, like, the lead designer for JoinRed.com's, Red, uh, uh, website redesign that became like the, uh, the second official website. So anyway, come is the uh, trade organization uh, sponsored by Bano who fights against AIDS in Africa. You might have seen like the, the red version of the Apple iPods or iPhones or- Oh yeah, uh, it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah, that's what they do. Um, and then I got to do things like design uh, Bud Light's very first mobile site ever. And then I got to work on Starbucks, uh, the Flash website, Cheetos games. Yeah, I got to work on like a whole bunch of different projects and build, uh, really built uh, build up my portfolio. And another thing that I did for that agency was I helped them win the Nokia account uh, by designing this widget they, they pitched. And what happened was after we won the account, actually, let's go back to Bud Light. After we won the Bud Light account, I was, even though I was on the pitch team, and one of the things I designed actually helped them win the, win the account because I was a junior designer, they didn't want me to work on their like big, biggest pieces. At the time, Flash was a big deal, so everybody wanted to build design a Flash website, but then nobody wanted to work on a mobile site, because at the time, that was when iPhone 2 was around, and nobody, there was really no concept of mobile sites. So I was like, I'll take it, and then I, I somehow that became the, Bud Light's very first mobile site, and later, that became one piece that got me the next job that led to bigger opportunities.
0: I just want to take a small pause here. Yeah. And um, there's just some amazing questions I have in mind that I wanted to dissect from your amazing journey so far. Yeah. So if it's okay with you, I'm just going to like, I had a few things I was just wondering about. Yeah. You mentioned as you started off on this, ama- on this journey is that you were a cartoonist. So yep. when you were like a small child, were you always like sketching like comic book heroes or something like that? Or were you like just doodling around? Like, so yeah. how did you figure out that you're going to be a designer?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I was, I was doodling. I mean, I, I wanted to be a cartoonist. Actually, uh, back, in, back in Korea in middle school, I was not going to make it to high school because I didn't have the money. High school is not free in Korea, by the way. So I, I, I was, Oh, I, I did was, not know that.
0: So you grew yeah, up in Korea, oh, I see.
1: Yeah. So I could not afford high school and and I didn't have the grades to make it to high school. So I decided to just become a cartoonist. And I I called one of my favorite cartoonists and asked him if he needed an apprentice. And I ended up getting turned down, but yeah, that was going to be my path if I stayed in Korea. When I came to the States, I sort of like second chance of life. So I got better grades, I ended up going to college, which I never intended. And then in college, So the job that I had was, uh, the major I had was the advertising. And then when I graduated, the advertising led to working for advertising agencies. And at the time, advertising agencies were trying to pitch digital products to uh, the clients, building websites, um, building banner ads, and things like that. And that became my way in to becoming a designer.
0: And what is your favorite comics? And the reason I ask you this is, I was recently in Japan, yeah. and I actually I'm a huge fan of some of the the manga there, like Dragon Ball Z and Yu Gi Oh, and yeah. I got one of the Dragon Ball Z illustrated comics that actually reads, um, unlike the U S, it reads from the U S. We read from left to right. This one actually, the whole book you have to open from the end and you read from right yeah. to left, and it was illustrated by the original creator of Dragon Ball Z, and it was mind blowing, like the the way they were able to convey the same thing I used to watch in the tv shows growing up
1: yeah uh i mean like my favorite would be just classic stuff like naruto like everybody likes it but uh i like one of my favorite characters it's not exactly that a good character Uh, i'd say uh have you have you heard of a uh series called death note
0: Song, you would not believe it when you said that that this may not be a good character right there and there in my head it was like is he gonna say Death Note because I watched the... Uh, I haven't read the comics, but I've actually watched the show and I've loved it. I know it's a little bit dark, but it's really amazing. The storyline and everything. Did you see the the, American, the Netflix American version or the actual Japanese version? I saw the actual Japanese version oh, dubbed yeah. in with the, the subtitles.
1: Yeah, so my favorite character is like Light Yagami. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, so like I, I, I have my evil side.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Wow. So you grew up watching all these things, which I, which kind of now makes sense why you're drawn to being a cartoonist. And and even now, do you still like sketch like cartoons or read comic books or? Yeah,
1: I so whenever I have downtime, I go to Barnes and Noble and read comic books. But sketching, not so much. Uh, to be honest, I was never really good that good of a uh, cartoonist. I was just getting, I was just getting by. Yeah, so I, you know, if if anyone asks me to draw anything, I probably like draw like a squiggly like skeleton, you know, six figures.
0: <laughs> and I love yeah. the fact that you go to Barnes and Noble and hang out and read comics because I do the similar thing here in Dallas. And what I end up doing is just reading architecture books and just looking at the photos. So, what comic books are you attracted to these days, or which one do you find yourself opening when you go to Barnes oh, and Nobles?
1: I mean, going back when I was in college, I couldn't afford to buy books, so I spent... All summer, like staying in Barnes Noble, reading uh, tutorial books, um, textbooks, uh, like mag technical magazines and things like that. That's how I uh, picked up all the skill sets um, that got me jo- jobs in the beginning. And then, uh, to reward myself in between reading like technical books, I sort of picked up comic books here and there. But then I ended up reading, uh, spending like hours reading comic books <laughs> instead of
0: studying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like uh, I think I uh, nowadays I'm re- reading something really I put the name of it it's really gory it's, I'm not really proud of reading it but it's, <laughs> it's entertaining and then uh, there is a series called Hunter uh, Hunter by Hunter Hunter X Hunter yeah so it actually it was actually created by the uh, the creators of uh, Sailor Moon but it's a completely okay. different style yeah. different storyline um, it was done by him the the author and his uh, his wife and. Okay it's a partnership, but, uh, they have tendency to start something and not end it. Right. And they did that Hunter by Hunter, they actually stopped working on it, like almost like five years ago, but they restarted it. So I've, I've been trying to pick that back up.
0: Awesome. So in this journey that you're going, you're still working at that agency and doing work for them. When did you decide that, okay, I think I've got, I've done enough work in my portfolio for the agency, but now I'm gonna branch out on my own and be my own boss and just freelance on my own. When did that happen?
1: That came later. Uh, that, so earlier when I was talking about my first agency I was working for, I went through maybe uh, two more agencies before I broke away and started doing contract work and freelance work. So what happened was that when, back in 2013, I was at an agency called Rockfish Interactive. My job was to redesign Sam's Club's shopping app, entire shopping app. And it was, a, it was like an like a eight-people team like stuck in a conference room, redesigned the entire shopping app for Sam's Club. And our, one of our tasks was to basically squeeze in as many products as possible on the home screen. And because in Sam's Club, they have tons of different products and categories. But when I was working with a UX designer, at the time I was just a UI designer, so I was working with a UX designer and he put together wireframes, different versions of it. And every single wireframe he put together, not just for this project, but for every other project, was, especially the home screen, it was basically just different variations of carousel, like slideshows, and it's going, you know, the carousel sliding left and right, up and down, diagonally, like different ways to squeeze in more pictures, more products, into a limited real estate on no a touchscreen. As I was looking at it, I'm like, really, is this the best, like, is this all we can do? Is this the best we could do as a human race? Like, it's, like, it's literally just, every wireframe was the same for every project. So I was like, this cannot possibly be like my life. This cannot possibly be like the best we could do as a human race. So I wanted to explore other ways, better ways of doing it, like better ways to organize large quantity of content, you know, limited amount of space. So I started, you know, doing some research, you know, doing some mock-ups and then after like three months or three weeks, it, it, it it took me some time after like, basically after work, that's all I did, exploring different options. And then I came up with a concept called organic information structure. And I put a, at first, I tried to explain it to my teammates in the room who was working on the SEMS club. Hey, guys, I came up with this amazing idea. Let's do this. But then like, I didn't quite articulate it well enough to make them understand what I was saying. So I was like, I was frustrated. So I decided to play entire presentation together. So I showed it to my creative director and he said, it's great. And then he helped me sort of like organize it better and a, a better way to pitch it. And then I. I submitted that presentation to South by Southwest, AIGA, and TEDx at SMU. So I got to speak at all these uh, events. Um, and next thing you know, I, I was like, you know what? Like, People kept pushing back and said, this is not possible. Like, you know, This is not feasible. This is not realistic. I, I don't get it. So People kept saying that. Was it so, the Sam's
0: Club executives that were pushing back? Or was it the, the raucous no, it people?
1: Didn't, it, it, didn't, it, it didn't even go to the Sam's Club executives. Basically, nobody oh, wow. ever... Nobody wanted to work on work on that concept at all at Rockfish. Uh,
0: it,
1: it, it was like I just mentioned it a couple of times, and it just went over people's heads. And they they're basically like, so I was, after like me explaining it, they're like, so next topic. <laughs> so basically, I was like, you know what? Like, I was getting good, you know, pushback at the same time some like support and like uh, from people that I uh, met at the presentations at you know South by Southwest and AIGA and TEDx. So I was like, you know what? Maybe I can pursue this on my own. Like I don't need, I don't know like what the next steps are, but I want to pursue this full time. So basically, what happened was because I was speaking at all these events, I met a guy from Samsung who offered me a uh, contractor position at a lot higher uh, hourly rate. So I decided to take that hourly job over a full-time job at Rockfish with benefits. So, so I could have more freedom to work on uh, this project. So that's how I quit my full-time job and became a contractor and then to pursue uh, my passion project. So that's how I started my uh, first company, Gestures Inc.
0: Wow. And then when you were doing the, the hourly thing, it seems that what you mentioned is the hourly rate was higher than what if you had to convert the full-time with benefits into an hourly rate of Rockfish. So that's why because the hourly rate was higher, you could just go out and buy your own benefits if you needed to.
1: Yeah, basically, uh, if you uh, get the total, uh, I was making probably like $110,000 a year at Samsung and $85,000 a year at Rockfish.
0: Yeah, and you're a healthy guy, so it's not like you're going to max out your benefits or or something like that, I see. Because a lot of designers that I see, a lot of them don't want to convert full-time at big companies. They just want to... Stay on as an hourly contractor because they explained to me that hey, I just make way more money per hour than if I were to convert into full time. I would have to take a pay cut.
1: Yeah. So basically, um, as I was doing that, I didn't know anything about starting a company. So I started going to these events. I tried to recruit some of the developers from the Rockfish to work on this project that I had, uh, but nobody wanted to work on it because they didn't trust me because I and I was nobody. I Uh, I didn't have the money, I didn't want to pay them. So I went, I started going to startup events and I was expecting to find like engineering partners and designer partners and things like that. But all I could find was business developers, basically people with, you know, business insights and ideas, but actually no technical capabilities at all. And one of the people that I met, he introduced himself as an angel investor. Uh, But then like later he wanted to 50, 50% uh, partner at Gestures Inc. But then he was supposed to be the business head and I was supposed to be the, the creative creative head. But what happened was that he didn't do anything. He made all his promises, but then he didn't really know anything about building a company. For example, he asked for preferred stock instead of common stock. Uh, if, 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 if you know anything about the stock, the founders are supposed to get common stock and investors get preferred stock because yep. in most cases, investors have small shares in the company. So to make sure they have some sort of power over the um the founder, they get preferential treatments. That's why they have a preferred stock with the yep. preferential treatments. But then he didn't know the difference between preferred stock and common stock. And then he asked me you to know, you know, incorporate the company using LegalZoom, which cannot do any custom work on paperwork. Long story short, the paperwork got fucked up by LegalZoom. We never really like signed anything officially. And he ended up leaving the company, like just because I kept pushing more, more, more work uh, towards him, because he so that he was a blessing
0: name. in disguise for you to go to yeah. Zoom.
1: <laughs> and also another blessing is that he made me do all the business work, from writing press releases to running a Kickstarter campaign to sorting, uh, to find finding a uh, dev team in Ukraine to basically anything business, uh, writing, uh, finding a the patent attorney, writing a patent. Like he made me do everything, and things I never thought I would do or could do as a designer, I did it because I I thought if I didn't do it, the company was gonna go down, go under. So I sort of stepped up and did it. And if he didn't make me do it, I to this day, I probably would not have done it. And now I know how to do all these things. And uh, probably I should thank him for that.
0: (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So do you still freelance on the side or or you just like I see. But so you work full time at Amazon right now in house, and then you also freelance on the side at whatever time you get.
1: Yeah. So I think one of the questions you had was like, what's the difference between working, uh, working for uh, agency, in house, or uh, freelancing? And it's basically uh, the reason why I do freelance whilst working at Amazon is that reason. Uh, it explains the difference between the three uh, three different jobs. When you work for big companies like Amazon, even though Amazon's actually more they move a lot more faster than other big corporations. But it's still a big corporation. There's a lot of stakeholders. Things do move a lot slower than startups. So when you design something, you usually end up designing small components on a page. It's not even a full product. It's a little feature, a little widget on a page on Amazon. Or things move so slowly, like it takes years for it to be funded. So when I'm not doing anything but just Amazon work. I feel like a little cognitive machine, and I feel like I'm just digressing Absolutely. and i'm I feel like I'm not learning anything new. Uh, I'm just learning about politics, like how to navigate the politics and all these you know necessities in a big company, but it's not really technical skills that like make me a better designer so only way for me to stay on like stay sharp and be able to learn you know best of the best uh tactics. And, um, skills is for me to keep taking the freelance work and see what's out there, you know, to learn the best, best practices, work with people who move fast and be able to wear multiple hats and not just being a designer, but multiple hats as a product manager, QA, business strategist, and US and UI designer. Being able to, you know, dabble these different, different responsibilities allow you to have better understanding of the entire spectrum of the, uh, process and be able to work with the clients and communicate with the, to your clients more fluently about what they can expect and what you can deliver because you have more control understanding of the entire scope of the project you're pitching to the client
0: so you have basically like a hybrid freelance model where you've got the the stable amazon gig which helps keeps the light on and then you also have the freelancing on the side where you can be more selective and stuff because now you, that's not where all the money is coming from. You can be selective about which projects you want to work on and it kind of bounces out versus going completely freelance. Yep.
1: What I've done so far is that I always have one job that's like a long-term gig, whether it's a little low, lower rate, maybe they have more restrictions, but I always have a long-term gig with one company that's guaranteed for a certain period of time and pick up other smaller uh, clients that's a higher risk potentially more money, sometimes no money at all, but I believe in a company. So I invest my time and energy into that company, hoping that they'll grow bigger and then they'll hire me for future jobs. And that has happened before.
0: So did you actually come across this model by trial and error where you just were just freelancing all the time, short-term gigs, and then you realize, like, okay, from the monetary perspective, I need to have a long-term gig and then some short-term gigs on the side, or was it something you just stumbled upon the first time you're trying out? It's something
1: that I just uh, learned from trials and errors. It's just that, uh, yeah, it's just, I was stubborn. Like when I got the contract job at Samsung, like, basically the very first personal, uh, project that I started working on at Gestures Inc. The first project cost me $100,000 the first year out of pocket. So imagine like the most money I've made at the time, up to that time was $85,000 a year but then that project ended up costing me $100,000. There's no way I could have afforded it unless I had a job at Samsung and a bunch of contract jobs. If I just stayed at Ratfish, which is a pretty demanding job. I mean, I work late hours with no over, overtime. So when I, if I had a job, I would not be able to do other side jobs to uh, pay for the gestures in the project.
0: I see. And how are you, like, is, is Gestures the, the banner under which you take freelance work now? Or is it like, how is the monetization happening for that, if you don't mind me asking?
1: Yeah. So Gestures Inc., all the, basically, every product that I take on, on except for a few ex- exceptions, is uh, under Gestures Inc. Basically, uh, when you incorporate a company, you could incorporate a C Corp, S Corp, uh, LLC, and basically, that, those are the three popular options. So what I did was I incorporated the company's LLC because I had a patent which I intended to uh, get investments on. So I incorporated a company in Delaware because Delaware has existing business cases that allow people to avoid losses that go to uh, the courts and things like that. So they can settle things outside the court, which is cheaper. Uh, So anyways, if you're thinking about building a company that's going to take investments, people always recommend Delaware, C Corp. But if you are going to be uh, a freelancing uh, as an individual designer, LLC is much easier way to file taxes.
0: So do you actually like, so, cause all this like, you know, overhead that goes into, so like let's say you're getting all these freelance projects in and so they're gestures in a banner. Like somebody's got to do the invoicing. Somebody's got to do the billing. You got to keep track of it. Ev- like all the project updates. It's almost like you have to, like you said, be a designer and at the same time be a project manager. So do you outsource that or do you also like do all of that yourself?
1: Well, I still do all of that myself. You know, accounting. Basically what I do is that, what, so when I, created a company, I made a bank account for Gestures, Inc. and it's hooked up to QuickBooks. And every expense I make on the credit card or you know, from the bank account, it's recorded in the QuickBooks. And at the end of the year, I have to categorize every single thing I spend money on. And whether it's a uh, considered uh, travel expenses, is it considered, what do you call it, entertainment expenses? Is it considered, basically there, there are tons of different categories where you can yeah. expense your Expenses into, and that's what I have to do. I take like a week or two off just to categorize all my expenses. Oh my god! Yeah, I just feel like you just can't hire an accountant to categorize them for you because like there's no way they know like what I spend money on, like <laughs> right? They, only I know where I spend that last you know twenty bucks on, like at Starbucks, is it for a meeting or is it for like a product research? Is I yeah? So. I, must, I still do my own accounting. Obviously, if, I, if the
0: company got bigger, sure, I'll hire somebody else. But for now, it's just easier that way. And then the new clients that you get on board, do they know that you're working full-time at Amazon or how do you manage if they say they have, we want you to come in on site on Thursday, but then you've got some kind of stakeholder meeting and going on at Amazon Thursdays, how do you manage those conflicts? So
1: most people are aware that I'm full-time job, so they do not expect me to fly in for meetings. But then, it, whenever that happens, I sort of like, you know, take the occasion days
0: and do that. That's like a pretty neat idea. One of the things I've struggled with song this year is like I, just like you, I've been going to conferences and stuff, and I got uh, two opportunities where I got to submit bid bids yeah. for or proposals to kind of take on that work. So one of them was actually creating a chatbot for a major news corporation, and I had to go in and just submit my bid. And it was literally because one of the designers sat in on my presentation. So I created a chatbot for the conference and she liked my chatbot. And she's like, you know what, we're working on something similar. Would you mind doing this for us? I said, sure, why not? So when I was creating this bid, one of the things was the chatbot area or the AI area is so new. So I couldn't even just look up numbers somewhere online or something. So I was struggling with it. So my question for you is when it's something like, like a new gig or like a new domain expertise like that, How do you figure out, like, not to, like, overbid or underbid? Like, how do you figure out, like, okay, this is the perfect value proposition that makes sense for me, but then also to the company, it signifies that, okay, because if you code a number that's too cheap, then they're like, okay, he's not a professional or she's not a professional. But then if you overbid so much, then you don't get the project. So how do you solve that problem for yourself? So was the company a major,
1: like, a big company or was it, like, a startup? It was basically Forbes. Forbes, okay. That's a difficult question. Yeah. Let me think about that.
0: So how do you, in your case, figure out your, like, do you charge hourly per project? So, Let's say a new project comes in your door, whether through a referral or, or you've actively tried to contact them. How do you figure out, are you going to charge them per hour or per the entire project? How do you go about so, that process? So should answer Short answer hourly. Uh, the uh, it's it's really rare that I
1: charge people project based because um, but by the na- because of the nature of the digital project, even if you're the smartest person in the world, uh, even if you can literally uh, scope you know every detail, estimate every detail of the project accurately, things could go wrong. Like for example, when you implement third party API or SDK, you know that you've never used before, you have to find workarounds sometimes. Things come up, and there's no way you could deliver. Uh, things on time every time so if you pitch a project to be a project based then you're sort of fucked and it actually uh, ends up ruining the relationship between you and the client because when something unexpected happens and you're not allowed to build more hours but they expect you to complete it with the same amount of money there's really no like there's really like no compromise there with the project-based agreement. So I don't even go there unless unless the project is super super simple and has a really rigid uh, requirements. For example, if somebody somebody wants to launch a uh, Squarespace website with and then they suppose that they're gonna provide all the copy and images. If they just need someone to launch it, sure, I'll, I'll do that for eight hundred dollars flat. But everything else hourly. And one another thing you might want you might to you, you consider is that um, if you're if you're working for startup companies, if you're looking working for not Fortune 500 companies, that think about situations when you're working for startup companies or like individual individual people, not Fortune 500 companies that have like legal issues and heavy contracts and things like that. So when you pick up this little project, I recommend designers, especially the entry level designers, to not just focus on Cash as a way of income, because when you're just an entry-level designer, you have tons of time, and you have tons of time, all of this time, because you're not that uh, there's really not much demand for you. And you, you should consider your hours as a way for you to invest in projects and people that you tr- you believe in. So, for example, if there's a guy in the startup event that has this idea that you believe in, and you trust the guy based on the conversations you have. If you really believe in that potential, invest your hours into it. And in return, you get equity. In return, you build, build a relationship with that person, build trust with that person. And then when that person becomes someone in the future, he'll come to you with bigger project and bigger reward.
0: And that's assuming that if you're going to take these risky bets, then there's also a side gig that's paying you to keep the lights on
1: exactly that's why I had multiple kinds of jobs so I had multiple jobs with multiple th- different characteristics one job long-term uh, engagement with a lower rate uh, that's stable and it's for sure in e- relatively easy but by some kind of mind-numbing like it's, you don't want to do that for the rest of your life kind of job and second job is basically like risky a uh, high-paying job uh, but it could be short-term. There's no guarantee. There's no, no long-term contract. And another type of job is someone that I want to invest my time and energy and talent in because I believe in, in the person. Actually, the, the biggest example I could give in that area was in that in the, in the use case is in, back in 2013, I met this guy who was an uh, well, acquisition manager at a healthcare company huge healthcare company in Florida. And he wanted to transition into a product manager role in tech companies. And he was asking me all these questions about how to go Mm -hmm. about doing it. And I didn't really think much of it. And then he was relentless. So he emailed me, he was not being rude. He was was very polite, but he followed, followed up with me, asking me questions. And then he also had some, you know, friends that he was working with to uh, build a product of his own. And he needed some help with the design. And I, because I sort of I I this energy, and I saw something in him, so I offered my help uh, for free. And next thing you know, he quit his job at the hospital, went to work for a uh, startup company called Kibo. It's a digital lock uh, technology company that was on Shark Tank. And he was like you know, one of the top people at the at the at the uh, the product managers at the at the startup. And then next thing you know, he quit that job to, be, to pursue his own consulting company. And then when he was doing that, whenever he needed a pitch deck, whenever he needed a uh, me-, me review something from the the you know all the designers, I took time to review the, the designs and give him feedback, helped him uh, embellish the pitch decks. I did whatever whatever I could to to help him. And then in return whenever he wins a big contract jobs, he gave them to me and I got paid for it. Wow! And then, yeah. And then next thing you know, he went back to the healthcare company in Florida as a senior product manager. And now after about two years of working there, he made his way up. He's about to be the CEO of their new, newest, newest future
0: initiative. Oh I my think. God. And then if he ever needs design consulting there, you're going to be the top of his list.
1: I am like, uh, he literally reached out to me for, for, uh, for like contract work. And basically, like, it, it goes both ways. Like, I, I saw something in him uh, in 2013. I invested my time, energy, and efforts in it. And in return, he got me this little contract jobs that helped me build my company, build my reputation, and then build my portfolio. And then uh, because because I was thankful for that, I kept helping him more and more with his, with his personal project. And that relationship and trust built over time. And he's now one of my closest friends. It started with a business transaction, but it sort of turned into a friendship. And we talk about things that we we can't talk about with other people because we got pretty close. So that's what I mean by building a, don't focus too much on earning cash from these gigs. Try to find, cash is important, but also keep an eye out for people and opportunities and projects actually believe in when you see a potential think of yourself an investor right like investors keep an eye out for the companies that they want to invest in that has potentials before and they invest in it before anybody else sees it you have to be out there looking for these people that you want to invest your time and energy into that before anybody else sees it and when they become someone someone bigger basically you're going to be bigger as well
0: yeah you're going to get the first rise you're going to get the, the vip entrance just because you got to know them when when they were nobody.
1: Yeah, and I'm telling you, this—I mean, this relationship took six years to build. I mean, we have huge ups and downs too. This is not an easy thing to do. But then, like with with anything that's worth pursuing, it's not easy. So you could either just keep getting, you know, you know, hundred dollars an hour contract jobs and save money and become rich, or you could take some risky risks, risky, risky jobs, do some free work, build relationships and trust, and. It's going to turn out to be something greater than you could possibly uh, make from, you know, cash-based jobs.
0: So a conflict that I have in my head right now is when you mentioned to me that you usually charge hourly for the projects. Based on some of the videos that I've seen or the road that I've gone on is basically the idea of charging a value-based price model. Meaning the idea here is that, okay, if you just code that, it's going to take me... I'm going to charge you like $50 or itemize basically what you're going to do for the Squarespace website. Let's take the example of Squarespace website. So to do the website is going to cost me flat 800 bucks for another extra page it's going to cost me that much. So instead of itemizing, it's like you want to do the website, it's going to cost you $1,000 or $2,000. It's like a fixed project-based thing. So this way you are including all these items in it. But if it's like hourly how do you go about like tracking Okay, how many hours you're going to go in that? And even then the client might want to know, well, we appreciate sure that you're going to do hourly, but even we need to allocate the budget for it. So even we need to know what the, how much you're going to charge. And then how is the client going to know, like tracking, like, okay, you work exactly 10 hours on this, or this thing takes 10 hours and not eight hours.
1: Yeah. I think you're talking about these videos from Chris right? He's talking. So Chris is, uh, I, I, I really like him. He, he talks about, Example I gave was the, uh, the logo design. So if I can design an amazing logo and give it to you in an hour, yep. do I charge you for one hour or do I charge you ten thousand dollars? Because I save you because I save you time, and I got you an amazing logo. So that's it. In the, So I love is I love that approach, but it's so new to the industry. You can either take time to educate your client about that new model, or you could just work with what you have. So in my case, in Chris's case, he's taking risk in, in a way that he's taking on specific clients that, that agree to his terms, like the different, with a different payment model. In my case, I'm taking a risk by investing my time in projects, uh, and people, or people that I believe in. That's gonna bring me a big greater ROI. We're taking, uh, but at the same time, I am Billing the clients in the traditional way hourly, so I don't have to argue with the clients about payment about payment method. So in a way, we're taking different risks with with different focus and different outcomes.
0: But what if the client asks you, Sung, how much do you think it's going to take?" St- like just tentatively, you still have to do the estimation, right? Like I'm going to charge you hourly, but it's going to take me thirty hours or hundred hours, right, to do the yep. project.
1: Yeah. So basically, what I what I what I do is that um, basically I can't just give them um for, for example when a cost when a so here's an example um when there's a uh company called the uh what is the company called I'm not, I'm going to look it up there's a uh taxi company in Florida um I forget the, the I forget their name uh they came they came to me and wanted an estimate for their project and um uh, they wanted their app to look and work just like Uber. And I was like, okay, um, that's rough, but I'll go with that. So what I did was I basically looked at every single screen on Uber, and I tried every single use case on Uber, um, and took screenshots, took took notes, and I, I, I estimated how much it would take, how much time it would take, to design all these screens and all these all these use cases and flows, it that work took about a week to do that, uh, and then I, and then I provided the rough estimate to 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 the uh, not just estimate rough estimate with the list of features and uh, uh, features that scoped out from Uber. So basically, like here's the estimate. This is how much it's going to take to design all these features on this list that I put together. And I, I call it I call it a product uh, requirement. So I send the product requirement with the estimate, send it to the client, tell them to look at it. Do you see any, any other features that's missing? Do you want to remove some of the features from the list? Basically, they review the uh, product requirements and my estimate, and if they agree, I'll start the project. If not, they can negotiate from there. Uh, but I don't just send the estimate. I send my estimate with the product requirements that shows the list of all the features that I scope out for that project.
0: So the estimate is basically the amount of hours it's going to take you to do all these features mentioned in the document into your hourly rate.
1: Yeah. So there is basically like if, any, if the client comes back and says, oh, I need this and that, uh, I, need, I need all these things after I deliver the design. If it's not part of the initial product requirement, it's going to be it's going to be additional uh, additional charge.
0: And then do you charge at the same hourly rate you had in that previous one? Or nope. No, usually the same. So how do you figure out what is your hourly rate in your case? Is it that you like what is your thought process behind that? do you look at like okay i'm this is how much i make at amazon per hour so i gotta make the same one or is it like this is what my skills are worth how do you figure that out
1: oh man it's been a long time since i figured out my hourly rate i don't exactly remember how i decided my hourly rate was going to be when i decided it was for
0: so what is your hourly rate right now if you had to share
1: like, oh, right now it's 150 150 an hour and then based on the other uh negotiating factors it ranges from there. If the company offers equity, I don't I work for startups that, that I don't believe in. So when I work for startups that, that, that I believe in, I always ask for equity because you know equity is my way of investing in companies. So if they're a company that's just starting out from the ground up, they have no product or nothing, if starting from the ground up, I ask for 1% and I lower my rate by $25. Okay. And then if the contract... If the job is going to be a long-term contract and you anything longer than three months, for example, then I also lower the, the rate by, uh, $25. So at my first big solo freelance project at the time, my hourly rate was 125 and then they offered me 1% in the company. So my hourly rate at the time was
0: $85 an hour. And then do you revisit your hourly rate every year to kind of like keep up with the inflation and stuff like that?
1: Yeah. And also, you know, I do have legacy clients, the clients that I, that I have had for a long time. In that case, I keep the hourly rate pretty much the same, uh, even though I'm, I want to raise it. But then, like, to me, maintaining a relationship is more important. So I keep the hourly rate pretty much the same for the legacy old clients. For new clients, I do think about my uh, – should I charge more? Every year I think about that. But then um, – it's a lot of work <laughs> to figure out what the new hourly rate is. <laughs> if, will the clients pay higher, higher rate? Yeah, so I just like, I'd rather not like think about my new hourly rate at the moment. Like right now, I'm just sticking with 150. I'm
0: happy with it right
1: now.
0: <laughs> I see. And that's 150 or 115?
1: 150.
0: Oh, okay. Got it. How do you actually figure about dealing with pain in the ass clients so you start this relationship with a new client and you're like all right there's a lot of money on the table you enjoy with them but at some point it's like my god they're really really like pain in the ass or they always come back with more changes or haggle on the prices or just some other issues are going on so how do you gracefully exit out or or decide the next step for that relationship with a client
1: exiting out is a good way to put it I don't know if I should say it publicly. Exiting out, I, I do exit out, but not, I don't just leave money on the table. So what I do is that one time I had a client who asked me to design a, uh, imagine Netflix, uh, it's a similar app. As you understand, like interface for TV should be different from interface for touchscreen or it's mobile or iPad. The size of the screen and the, uh, how you interact with the screen it changes the way it should be designed, right? Yep. And this CTO wanted a single interface that works for all platforms. Android, iOS, iPhone, iPad, TV, everything.
0: Wow.
1: So I was like, does that does not I try to explain why it's not a good idea. And he was bullish about I want it that way, and he, he literally told me, Song, Basically just, he just literally told me, Sang, just shut up and do what I tell you to do. So basically, as soon as he said that, I mean, I want to just walk out of there, first of all, but if I just walked out of there, he wins. I, I'll lose out on the money, the opportunity. So well, what I decided was, this relationship is over. This, this, this is no longer a partnership where I care about their benefits. Now I, I care about my benefits, so I literally did everything they told me to do, and bill hours, collected paycheck, while looking for other clients, because I knew if I did exactly what they told me to do, the project would fail, and they'll blame me because I touched it. So when you take this approach, you have to be you have to be aware that it doesn't matter if they tell you to do certain things that you that that's a bad decision. As long as you move the pixel, as long as you are created the file, you are accountable. So if that project fails, you are accountable and they will blame you because. You so know, you get screwed both want, ways. Yeah. So they don't, they don't want to blame themselves for telling you, giving you the wrong directions. So they blame you because you're a contractor, you're expendable. So I knew that was going to happen. So I collected as much paycheck as possible before they let me go as a contractor. And that's how I burn bridge with people that, you know, treat me badly.
0: Wow. So it's almost like an art of war kind of thing you're doing there where you're very much aware about your own needs and benefits and not just like saying that, okay, I'm just going to walk out of here and leave all this money on the table.
1: Yeah. And it takes, it basically like, it feels like garbage. It feels like you're sitting in a pile of garbage because somebody just shed on you and you're sitting there taking it because you need that money. Like I needed, I needed the money to fund my project. So so basically how much, how valuable is your ego? You have to think about that. Like to me, fuck ego, I'll take the money.
0: Wow. <laughs> oh my God. I remember one of the things you said to me, I think it was four to five years ago. And we were, I believe standing outside or near this like salad place or salad restaurant, Salada. <laughs> and, or, or we ran into uh, each other there on the street and I had asked you a question, where do you get your design inspiration? And at that point you said to me, I look for inspiration for design outside of design. Yeah. And it blew me away because it was so controversial to what most people would do.
1: What does you, that mean you at, you? Yeah, you? Yeah. You asked me like, what kind of books I've been reading and, I, I, uh, <laughs> and what kind of books I recommend. I, and I said, I recommend Harry Potter. Because, uh, <laughs> remember that? I do because to me, ability to dream, people tell you, to think after the box, what does it mean? It, you have to, it, that means that you have to dream. You have to think, think of something that hasn't existed. or doesn't exist yet. Or people or things that people are not aware of. How do you do that? Do you do that by reading textbooks? Textbooks are instru- instructions about things that already exist. That things are things that people are already aware of. How do you? Dream from reading textbooks or how-to books. You don't. You dream from reading things that, reading things like Harry Potter, like reading things, things like comic books, and then reading things like going out to, uh, going, you know, hiking on the mountain, going to different countries, meeting random people, talking, learning about their life, you know, the the, the way of way, their life, way of lives. You get inspirations from anywhere in this world except for textbooks or how to books and videos and that's how, that's how I get my inspirations. I, that's one of the benefits of me becoming a nomad. I, now that I travel, like right now I'm staying at a new Airbnb that I've never been, never been in before. Just being in here, looking at the way they decorated the place, it's inspirational to me. Like that's how I get my inspirations.
0: So where are you based right now or where are you talking with me from right now?
1: It's a really spanky Airbnb Plus in Seattle, it's a central
0: district. <laughs> oh, okay. So you are based in Seattle, and yet you're living in an Airbnb, or you've got your own apartment there?
1: I don't. Have, so I, I don't have anything. I don't know if you saw any of my videos before, but basically, I sold my house in Dallas, moved out of the house in Capitol Hill, um, and then I put all my belongings in a storage unit, and then I don't have a place. Like, I, I don't pay rent anymore. I don't have utility bills. I don't have electricity bills. I don't have to pay for Wi-Fi. So I just go wherever I want. I pay Airbnbs, uh, hostels, friends' place, coworkers' place, sometimes hostel hotels. It's like, I just be wherever wherever I wanna be.
0: Wow. That's a badass lifestyle.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, it's the whole point of it is not to save money, it's just to get more experiences. Like one day, like a few weeks ago, I was in Korea, uh, backpacking from Busan to Seoul. And then last week I was in Dallas and this week I'm in Seattle. And in a few weeks I've been in Morocco.
0: That is mind-blowing, man. What happens when one of your clients is just behind on paying you? Or do you just like chase them? Or you're just like, you know what, this is not worth it. Me always chasing you for the invoice or not paying on time?
1: Yeah, so actually I did have those cases. I hate saying it all depends, it actually does depend. It depends on amount of money, it depends on how much you believe in the person. So for example, when I worked for a on-demand hair, hair and makeup service company in Dallas, which was my very first big break, the CEO trust me to build an app, that would help him uh, get customers and raise money, and I did that. And he comes from a, uh, political fund, a political fundraising background. So he's amazing at raising funds, talking to people, networking. And because I'm not as good at that, I knew that having someone with that capability in my network will be amazing to have. So that's another person I invested my time and energy in. And there are times when the on-demand hair makeup service company could not pay me let alone pay for anything else. So, for example, there was a that we had to do a photo shoot one one time for the app, and he he didn't have money, so I basically put down my ten thousand dollars to do the photo shoot, and he paid me later. So sometimes, like you have to put money where your mouth is if you really believe in someone or some a, a company. And then later, he, you know, took a few more attempts to revive the company, but then it failed. And then he owed me probably like a couple of thousand dollars here and there, but sure, I, if if I pursued it, if I if I went after him, sure, like he would have would have paid me, like he's that kind of guy. But at the same time, a couple of thousand dollars was not worth like ruining a relationship to me. I knew that because the way the way it worked was that those couple thousand dollars, it's not the money he owed me; it's that somebody else he introduced. Uh, that was working with him. That that other guy was owing me, but he, the he felt responsible. But he did. It's not that he owed me. It, the other guy, the other guy owed me. So if I if I went after the other guy, basically
0: you would ruin this relationship too.
1: It would make my friend really uncomfortable and ruin the relationship, you know, by that association. So instead of going after that guy that owed me money, you know, risking ruining the relationship, I just ate it. I just added a couple of thousand dollars and I waited for like, you know, it's been like two years, three years since I ate two thousand dollars. But now he is like the at, at one point he was working for a PC company that funded Lyft. And then now he's working for another like the fundraising insurance company, basically the the companies that insure uh, funding from the investors. So he's working for that company. And he has a huge network of people that I would love to leverage at one day. And he, he's, uh, I mean, just recently, he had to put a pitch deck together. And he uh, came back to me to put that pitch deck together and pay me for it. It's sort of like already paid off. The $2,000 I ate a couple of years ago, I already made, made the money back. And like, the relationship is still intact. And he actually invited me to his wedding a few months ago at a downtown country club. <laughs> I've never been in there before. It was an amazing experience. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you get access to people and places when you invest in the right people.
0: Man, I wish, you, you got so many amazing stories, man. Like every time, like I love the fact that you'll give me like your viewpoint and then also code like, okay, this is a real life example that happened with it. So this way it makes more sense versus just talking in abstract.
1: Yeah, that reminds me, I should be doing more of that. I've been making videos on LinkedIn and Instagram, but I've been doing a lot of abstract talk, but haven't really done any specific examples. Maybe I should start doing them more.
0: (laughs) Because think about it this way, like a lot of people talk in abstract, a lot of designers, but then when you actually want to know, like, for example, you just stated, you know, publicly your hourly rate and stuff, So right there now, a lot of people can get some kind of baseline, some kind of understanding. Oh, well, this is how you do it. This is what's going on. versus just talking in apps like, well, this is what I charge X and X plus Y is this. Yeah. I remember a while back you got featured on, if I'm not mistaken, Business Insider, Top 100 Designers in Tech. Yeah. I'm curious, how did that happen? And did that publicity lead to new contract work or freelance work for you? The short answer, no. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so, oh my
0: god! I was expecting a tool. Yes, <laughs>
1: but, but it did have a benefit. So uh, the way it, the way it happened was that a friend of mine. So at the time, I was working for a startup company that, uh, with my friend. So I was just dabbling with the startup while having a full time job. But at the time, I had no idea I was going to go into like building a company later. But it was, I was just helping my friend out with his startup as a designer, and then. I mean, he really liked my work and all that stuff, so he's an avid reader. So he gets the uh, the news alerts from the Business Insider, and then he saw news from Business Insider about Business Insider looking for top designers in technology for them to rank. And he told me to like give him my resume. So I gave him my resume and he submitted it and he nominated me nominated as, as one of the top designers. He has no like, insider connections with the Business Insider or anything. Like he just submitted my resume to Business Insider like anybody else. And then I was kind of like, I was kind of curious. Like, I know what would happen if I submit other people's resumes too. So what I did was, uh, there was a creative, creative director in, uh, in Dallas who he is the first creative director that did not hire me up until the point I interviewed with this creative director for Bottle Rocket uh, Agency in Dallas. Every, yeah, every Michael job, Prisket? yep, yeah,
0: yeah, the amazing guy.
1: Every job I interviewed with, I got the job except for him. I did not get the job with him. So I was like, I'm gonna like submit his resume to Business Insider and see how we rank. Like, <laughs> and also I also submitted another guy. Uh, named Michael Wong from Australia. I met with him briefly on a conference call uh because we were looking for a end developer and I really liked his portfolio from Dribbble. So I reached out to him and we got on a call and I really liked his energy. So I also submitted his resume. And when I said resume, I really put some time in writing out, Like I looked at all their like portfolio pieces, looked up their LinkedIn information. I wrote a pretty decent, like a, uh, uh, the, Profile for them and submitted them to, uh, the Business Insider. And when it came out, I think my, uh, musical, uh, ranked 70. And then Michael Griffith ranked 53. Uh, and then I was ranked 51. That is amazing. And, and the, uh, I don't want people to think that this represents actual skill set. It does not. Like to this day, I kind of suffer from imposter syndrome. Like, even though I've built mo- multiple startup companies, raised millions of dollars, like, to this day, I have things that I I think I don't deserve, like having ranked as the 51st top designers in technology. It's just that if you look at Dribbble, if you look at Behance, like, there are tons of designers technically so much better than me. There's so many out there. So, just looking at their work, I always think, how, how the fuck did I make it to this list? Like if they submitted their resume, would I not like make it to the list? So first of all, I'm thankful that my friend submitted my re- resume. Second, like every day of my life is me trying to live up to this ranking, basically. That's sort of like my internal driver to like live up to this the ranking that I accidentally received. And Michael, like not Michael Griffiths, like he's doing really well. Like, I mean, he built the the bottle rocket company from pretty much ground up. Like when I first interviewed with him, it was a tiny little office. Like it was a you invested office in in Edison. And now it's like a billion dollar company that got got bought out.
0: Yeah.
1: And then uh, in Australia, Michael Wong, now he has like hundreds hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram.
0: Wow. Yeah, and then you're saying that this did not lead to direct new uh, gigs because of this publicity.
1: I got only one interview from Facebook back in 2013, who found me through this link. But otherwise, I didn't have any any uh, anyone reach, reaching out to me for, with anything, except my in Dallas when I was just starting out. When I was just starting out, my company getting trying to get gigs what I realized was that because I had this on my resume, my words carried more weight. So I was I literally, at, at the time I was still working for uh, an agency while you know trying to get freelance gigs back in like, not even 2013, it's like 2012. Like I was trying to get little gigs here and there, still working for an agency. And I would say the same thing at the agency, then people will just brush it off or just go over people's head. But when I say the same exact fucking thing with people, that, people outside agencies, people in startups, uh, people that don't know my past, people that they just know me as a 51st type of design in technology. When, when they hear the same thing, they believe me. Somehow my words carry a lot more weight because of this ranking. And because they believe me, I have the opportunity to prove myself that I was right and many times I was right and that's how I, was able, how I was able to get more clients and be able to raise um, millions of dollars for the startup companies Wow because if, if I didn't have this ranking it, it would be been a lot harder for me to get clients to believe me and or give me opportunity to prove myself but if I this ranking it, it made my life a little easier
0: That's phenomenal son. Any last words or tips or advice for junior designers or people just starting out in the field of design?
1: When you're in the beginning stage of your, on your career path, it's important for you to mimic the behaviors of successful people in the field and learn all kinds of tactics, practices, processes, and uh, methods that they're using as a cheat sheet to quickly catch up to them. But once you get to a certain point on your career path, those things don't really matter anymore. Because what made the successful people successful are not those specific tactics, methods, and processes, but, but, but their drive, the, simply their, their drive to get better at what they do. And that drive helps them constantly figure out new tactics, methods, and processes to help them deliver better results more efficiently. So, yes, go and copy, go and watch those how-to videos. Go read as many tutorial books and videos and watch tutorial videos as possible. Learn all the nuances of you know making design decisions by copying all the copying all more successful people right now. But as you go get further into the get further along on your career path, try to figure out what drives you. What drives you to get up in the morning every day to do what you do, uh what drives you to deal with shit every day and, and still keep going forward. Once you figure out what drives you to do what you do, that's the actual key to
0: success. If you made it this far, you are what I call a Design MBA super fan. And I've got a gift for you, my super fan. Head over to designmba.show where you will find my email address. Email me one thing you learned from this podcast episode and I will... Get on a 30-minute call with you and help you in your career goals. See you in the next episode.